0: How many of you are part of some kind of a gift exchange this year? Yeah, depending on what you mean by that. I guess I'm thinking of where where you get a Christmas gift for someone and in turn you expect to receive a gift from someone. It might not be the same person. But many of you are part of something like that and maybe you're opening your presents tonight yet after the service. Um, You know, these gift exchanges can kind of be a challenge sometimes as a... Sometimes we find that there are some people that are more into giving and others into getting. And so we end up, at least in our family, we establish some guidelines with you know, a direction of how much to spend on and to make it somewhat fair so that each receives a similar value and so on. And still, it doesn't always work that way. And I bet maybe some of you have found that there are times where uh, you've worked hard at picking out a special gift for somebody and, and uh, maybe you were even a little disappointed in, in what you got. Well, tonight I want to encourage you to be part um, of a gift exchange like no other ever that you've participated in. It's an exchange where someone is offering to give you far more than you can ever give in return. And I want to introduce this great gift exchange by telling you about a little boy. It was quite a few Christmases ago, but there was a distressed single mother who came to the conclusion she could no longer care for her infant son, and she gave him to a state adoption agency. And little did she or anyone else know that within a few weeks, that child would be adopted into a very wealthy family in California. It was a couple who had an annual income in the millions, And after all the requirements were met and the papers were signed, this little 15-month-old baby was declared the legal heir of a fortune that came close to $20 million. What a sudden change came for that little boy from extreme poverty to extreme wealth. And it's a little bit like that for you and I as we consider then the tremendous wealth that became ours as a result of that first Christmas and what followed in the life of Jesus Christ. And and, and listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes it in in the second letter to uh, the church at Corinth. Uh, Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he he writes in chapter 8, verse 9, this little bit. And I'm not going to even have you stand here tonight. It's a very short verse, but it's loaded. It, It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for our sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pause and pray. Lord God, we pray that tonight, as we meditate on this simple verse, that you would open our eyes to the significance of the gift that you offer to each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, this Christmas Eve, as as we think of exchanging gifts, I'd like us to look at Jesus' Christmas gift to you and also what you gave to him. And and I want to first of all note again that this is not a fair gift exchange. What Jesus gave to us is far beyond what we can give back to him. He gave it not expecting something equal in return. Verse 9 starts out this way. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's grace? It's unmerited favor. It's giving or getting something better than one deserves. And so grace, then, is the same thing as a gift. And when you get a Christmas gift, you don't get them because you earned them. They wouldn't be a gift if that was the case. I had to laugh um, about a week ago in in the... uh, Fargo formed the Peanuts comic strip there, had a few days in a row where it it showed this little scrap that was going on between uh, Linus and Lucy. And uh, as a result, uh, Lucy had hauled off and bopped Linus on the nose. And the result was that Linus decided he wasn't going to get Lucy a Christmas gift this year. And that really, really bothered Lucy. And, And so she tried taking back the hit. But Linus wasn't going to give her a gift anyway. And, and so she told him, Well, you know, it says in the Bible that you have to give me a Christmas gift. Well, Linus knew better than that, and he told her that she was bluffing. And, and so next she said, Well, you have to give me a Christmas gift because that's the Christmas rule. And Linus said, Well, I can do anything I want. You hit me? So I've decided not to give you a Christmas gift this year. And that was the end of it. Well, he was right in that you don't have to give a gift. Gifts are something that you choose to give. They're not earned or deserved. And as we consider then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to us, it's quite clear that he didn't have to give us anything. But he did. He gave a gift to us far better than any of us deserves, and that's an understatement to say the least. And as we think then of Jesus' grace to us, I see in this text really three understatements describing then that tremendous grace of Jesus to us, that tremendous gift that he gave us that first Christmas. And I, and I think that the Apostle Paul used these understatements because you know, sometimes understatements have a way of getting the point across like nothing else. So for instance, um, somebody goes out and they run a marathon, and then afterwards they say, you know, that kind of tired me out. No, that's an understatement. Or someone comes in from shoveling snow, and it's 20 below outside. And there's frost all over their mustache and facial hair. And, and uh, they, they say, you know, it's a bit, a bit cold out there. That's an understatement. And so here, as we look at these statements describing Jesus' grace to us, we see them as understatements that get the point across. And it starts out by saying this, Though he was rich... Now, rich and poor are really relative terms that need defining or explanation so that we understand to what degree that we're talking about. And here he says, though Jesus was rich, well, how rich was he? He was the king of heaven. As the son of God, he was on the throne of heaven, he owned everything in the universe. There was no one richer than him, no one even came close. His wealth would make Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and and, uh, Harold Hamm look poor. All of the angels of heaven did Jesus' bidding. There was nothing that wasn't at his disposal. Though he was rich, that's an understatement, yet he became poor. Understatement number two, how poor? The Son of God emptied himself and became a human baby, born in, of all places, a haymanger. There was a Christmas movie a few years ago called The Nativity that I think it did a good job overall of portraying um, the gospel accounts in both Matthew and Luke. And toward the end of the movie, it shows the Magi from the east and coming to see this one who was born king of the Jews and finding him in a stable. And now likely we know from Scripture that he wasn't necessarily in a stable. He might have been in a house there, but still in Bethlehem at that point. But anyway, in the movie... One of the magi said some memorable words as he arrived there at the stable. He said this, The greatest of kings, born in the most humble of places. And that sums up really just the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. But Jesus' birth was also really just the beginning of his poverty then and of his humble circumstances. And we learn in confirmation classes of five steps in the humiliation of Jesus, starting with, his birth in poverty, then his suffering under Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And that's how poor the Son of God became. That's how much he humbled himself for us. Born in a haymanger because there was no room for his birth, even in a crude inn. Then after growing up in relative obscurity and three years of itinerant preaching, um, in which he really owned no significant earthly possessions, he was falsely accused, and though innocent of any crime, yet suffered beating under the soldiers of the Roman governor. And that governor then agreed to have him hung on a cross like a lowly criminal, and to die an undeserved and inhumane death, and to be buried in a borrowed grave. Isn't it ironic to think that the king of all heaven endured that on this earth at the hands of Of the crown of his creation, humankind. Though he was oh so rich, yet he became oh so poor. Two understatements. The third is this, that you through his poverty might become rich. How rich might we become? Joint heirs of heaven. That's what Jesus, the risen son of God, offers to us. He offers us to share the wealth of heaven Someday. Now, that's quite an offer, especially as we consider that we weren't going there before if, if he hadn't left his throne to become poor for us. Why did he do it? It says here, for, for your sake he became poor. You, you see, we were not heading there. We, we were not going to make it to heaven. Our individual sins and our rebellion against our Creator were heading us to the other place instead, to hell itself. And we were unable to do anything to stop that from happening. We could not save ourselves. We needed a Savior. And that was what Jesus came to be. And we might prefer to deny that we are such sinners in need of a Savior, but doing so doesn't take the reality away. It's a little bit like a young man I read about, I think it was in Texas, who had a bullet lodged in his forehead, and he was denying that he was involved in a shooting in that city. Now here it was, the evidence lodged right there in his forehead where anybody could see it but himself, and he was refusing to allow the police to have the doctor take the bullet out and to use it as evidence against him, and so he had a lawyer to defend him on this as he kept the bullet there. You know, we could get all of the lawyers... We could afford to defend us, but our case as we stand before the judge, Almighty God, is still indefensible. We're all guilty of rebellion and deliberate breaking of his laws, and we deserve punishment. And the great gift exchange, then, is what happened on the cross. It reminds me a little of the exchange that took place in Sweden a few years ago. There were two 18-year-old young men. They were identical twins. And they swapped their clothing and traded places so that one of them could escape from jail. The police and prison officials weren't so happy when they found out that the other brother that was supposed to be serving the time had actually walked out in freedom undetected. And during the visit, what had happened then was the two siblings managed to exchange outfits without anybody noticing. And after visiting hours ended, then the inmate walked out pretending to be his brother. And uh, when the one that was left there then was faced with the prospect of spending the night in jail, he admitted this had happened. And uh, there was really only one noticeable difference, and that was a little birthmark on the forehead that they had taken care of with a a marking pen to match it. The visiting brother was then questioned and released, and I didn't hear the rest of the story to know if the escapee was caught or not. But there was a slightly similar exchange that happened on the cross when Jesus died. He took our penalty on himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 describes this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. And so the innocent one took the place of the guilty ones. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. The guilt of our sin was transferred to his account, and God let that exchange stand. It was like a legal transaction that took place between the Father and the Son, where Jesus then declared the guilty ones um, was Jesus who declared the guilty one in our place, taking on our punishment. And not only that, but his goodness then, his perfect righteousness was transferred over to our account. And so when the Father looks down from heaven on us, he sees us as righteous even though we know we are not. We're still sinners, but we are declared legally righteous anyway because we have Christ's righteousness credited to our account. So why did Jesus do it? He says here it was for your sake, for you and I, so that we would have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. As it says in John 3.16, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Why did he do it? It was because of his grace, because he loves to give better than we deserve. That's the amazing love he has for us. Why did he do it? He did it so that you and I might see that real riches aren't earthly possessions, but they're eternal riches. And you know, during this season, we sometimes get this a little mixed up. We we focus so much on those earthly possessions and earthly traditions, and in a way, it's a trick of Satan to get our focus off of what really matters. What really matters is if we know that we have heavenly riches, if we've received the gift that God has given us and responded to Jesus by confessing our sins and receiving the forgiveness and eternal life that he offers. Well, we've talked a bit here about what Jesus gave us at Christmas. Let's talk for a bit about what we gave him in exchange. What do we give him? Our poverty, our sin. That's what he wants us to give to him. And if we aren't willing to bring our sins to him, then his sacrificial giving really was in vain. He wants us to give him our sins of the past and and to quit carrying that load of guilt around when he died to forgive us. And it doesn't seem like a fair gift exchange, does it? We get forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven, and he gets the punishment of our sins. But you know, we have nothing else to bring. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags to the holy and righteous Son of God. And so we come to him just as we are, and we trust in him and what he has accomplished on the cross for us, and we receive him into our hearts and our lives and we rejoice in his goodness and grace. Now maybe there'd be somebody here who'd say, now wait a minute, are you sure? Are you sure that's really what it's saying in that verse? Yes, I am. That's what the Bible is all about. That's the great exchange. It's the incarnation and the atonement. Jerry Bridges wrote a, a book called The Great Exchange My Sin for His Righteousness. And, and in here, he traces that in the Bible and reminds us of how in the Old Testament, all kinds of things were foreshadowing this that would come through Jesus Christ. And, and then all the Old Testament prophets were pointing ahead. To this great exchange that would happen and then the Gospels tell us about it happening and then the rest of the New Testament points back to that that did happen and this is the difference it makes for anybody who will believe and at the end of his book he says and I quote our book the great exchange our sin for his righteousness has come to an end but Jesus Christ will never end and neither will the validity of his finished work and substitutionary atonement on our behalf We exceedingly rejoice that as redeemed sinners we have changed places with him forever. Our holy triune God not only endorses substitutionary atonement, but he initiated, executed, and secures it forever. In fact, he devised it before the world began as the ultimate display of his glorious grace, whereby instead of getting the curse we deserve, we get God's blessing in its place. You know, there's only one other thing that we can and ought to do. And it's not to in any way earn this, because remember it's a gift. It's only in response, in thankfulness to God for this great gift then that he invites us to give ourselves to him. He says in 1 Corinthians, and he died for all. Why? so that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. You know, I hope that you get some presents under the tree this year, and when you do, you recognize that somebody went through some trouble to give you something special. And you are, in your heart, then grateful. And as we think of God's gift to us at first Christmas, may our hearts be moved to gratefulness and to a desire then to give back to the Lord in humble service of our lives. I read once about a family that had the last name Christmas. And it started years ago when a lady named Mary married a guy named Henry Christmas. That made her name now Mary Christmas. And they had a kid, whose name was Bob, but he named his daughter Christy Noel Christmas. They had a niece who was named Carol Christmas, and so on. And needless to say, they they got a few jokes about this over their lifetime, um, especially this time of year. But, you know, they said it also kept them on their toes. For instance, uh, when they were out shopping for Christmas gifts, they tried not to be grumpy or rude because when they went up to pay, then they have noticed that their name was Christmas. And one of them said this, it would be my goal that our lives as a family exemplify not just the birth of Christ, but the life of Christ as well. Is that your goal and mine? If we live as Christians, we bear the name of our Savior, and we reflect his love for others in what we do. And that's what he wants this Christmas, our hearts and our lives. He wants us to give our hearts filled with joy at his goodness and grace to us, and then eagerly point to others to the source of that, and to that great exchange that happened. Reminded of another Christmas carol, comes from Martin Luther, The words go like this and sum it up From heaven above to earth I come, to bear good news to every home. Glad tidings of great joy I bring, whereof I now will say and sing. To you this night is born a child of Mary, chosen virgin mild. This little child of lowly birth shall be the joy of all the earth. This is the Christ, our God and Lord, who in all need shall aid afford. He will himself our Savior be from all your sins. To set you free, He will on you the gifts bestow prepared by God for all below, that in His kingdom bright and fair, you may with us His glory share. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for that great exchange. It's sometimes even hard to believe that anyone would be willing to give such a gift. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and that it is revealed and declared over and over and over again in the scriptures. And we thank you that we don't have to carry the burden of our guilt of our sin, but we can know that as we humble our hearts before you and ask forgiveness, that it has been accomplished uh, through your sending your Son to be our Savior and to go to the cross for us. And, And Lord, I pray that Each one here tonight would know that in their heart. That as they are honest with you in admission of sin, that they are also receiving that free gift. And Lord, may it move our hearts in gratefulness and in eagerness to point others to the hope that we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs)